This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Father James J. Martin. He is a Jesuit priest, writer, and editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine, America. In 2017, Pope Francis appointed Martin as the consultant to the Vatican Secretariat for Communications. You've seen him on the Colbert Show. He's... uh, all over uh, the media, very popular, very interesting. We're very excited to have him. And his latest book, Learning to Pray, which will be coming out in February 2021. This is being recorded in January 2021. So uh, welcome to the show. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. My pleasure. Good to be with both of you. Uh, Father Martin, I was intrigued to discover that um you had a career in finance and working for uh, General Electric for some years um, before turning to the priesthood. And I'm always curious when I hear that sort of thing uh, about um, how you had that sense of calling, what it was like and and what the decision was like. Can you? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I, as you say, I went to uh, the Wharton School as an undergrad and then I worked for General Electric for six years in corporate finance and then in human resources. Uh, And and basically, I wasn't very happy. I felt like the proverbial square peg in a round hole. Uh, And I came home one night and saw a documentary about Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, who I know both of you know. And uh, his, his life just seemed so interesting and compelling that I went out and read his book. And I sort of found within myself this desire for, you know, what's called religious life, life in a religious order, which is really how a call starts. I mean, um, you know, desire, you know, you're interested in it, you're attracted to it. So that's how it happened. It was thanks to, I would say my vocation came from television, you know, thanks to TV. <laughs> uh, Father, uh, the Jesuit order is a very scholarly order. And they also tend to be uh, those in the church uh, that are, that are, uh, um, most liberal. And uh, Pope Francis, our current Pope, is the first, as I understand, the Jesuit priest is the first pre- uh, first Pope, rather, from the Americas. Uh, he's the first, first Pope since, I think, the ninth century that um, uh, is not from Europe. So, uh, and, and I, I know you had the opportunity to, to meet with him mm-hmm. uh, in, in the last couple of years. Uh, tell us about uh, maybe a few words on the Jesuit order and uh, your meeting with the Pope. Yeah, sure. Uh, he is the joke among the Jesuits is he is the first and last Jesuit Pope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So the Jesuits are a religious order, which means uh, we are a group of men. There are women religious orders. We take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. We live in community. Uh, you know, I think in the States, we're mostly known for our educational institutions. So Boston College, Georgetown, Fordham, any college named Loyola. Uh, we were founded um, you know, by, by St. Ignatius Loyola. It's education, but also lots of different kinds of work and uh, pastoral work, social justice. Um, yeah, and he is the, he's the first Jesuit. Uh, I think you know, the joke is that um, they, didn't, they forgot they were electing a Jesuit. <laughs> <laughs> because you know he he comes from you know he comes from a religious order he comes from outside of the kind of diocesan model so he he just comes at things differently he has a different as we say in the jesuits way of proceeding that's fascinating um, you mentioned merton as a big influence in your life were the uh not a lot of catholics in, that in my experience don't know merton 
uh, and certainly don't know uh, the long history of other uh, what we call uh, Christian mystics that mm -hmm. he's a contemporary uh, version of. Um, were you interested in the uh, other <laughs> Christian mystics and the uh, and then the contemplative life prior to your calling? No, not at all. I if you had said to me, name a Christian mystic before I entered, I would have just I would have I wouldn't have known what to say. Yeah. No, I really didn't. You know, I didn't grow up very religious. I you know I'm Catholic and my parents were good people and Catholic, but. I, you know, I, I went to a, um, a public elementary school, public junior high, public high school. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is certainly not Catholic and Warden is certainly not Catholic. And so I knew very little, uh, you know, but to your point, I, I think it's a good point. Very few people understand well, the Christian mysticism and the, the history of Christian mysticism and even someone as famous as Thomas Merton is not as well known as, you know, Merton would have been in the, certainly in the 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, so yeah, I, but no, I, I was, I was a, a, a novice to coin a phrase to, uh, to that tradition. Uh, Father, you uh, are known for uh, having reached out to the LGBT uh, community very much and uh, showing great compassion for them. Uh, some in the church have uh, celebrated you for doing that. And some of the, in mm -hmm. the church have been very critical of you. Mm -hmm. uh, where, where, where does the, where did the Pope stand on that when you interacted with him? And also, um, what, where do you think uh, the church needs to go with this? Yeah. So um, I'm actually, I met with the Pope for a half an hour uh, in September of 2019. It was a real high point of my life. Uh, I'm actually, he asked me not to talk about what we discussed, but what I can say is this. I can certainly say this. We talked for a half an hour about LGBT Catholics. That's what we talked about. And uh, his invitation to me uh, was was in was in the apostolic palace where he meets uh, presidents and diplomats they put a picture out they put it on his schedule so it was clear you know for people who read vatican tea leaves what he was trying to do which was you know i, can, I think i can say you know show his support um for the ministry um where where should the but and it was a very warm conversation he was very open and listened and um yeah it was really great uh, a high point for me um where should the church go the, the first step is for the church to listen to the experiences of LGBTQ Catholics, just listen to them and treat them with what the catechism asks, which is respect, compassion, and sensitivity, and with what the gospel asks, you know, that Jesus asks, which is love and mercy and compassion. So the first step is just to listen to them and to treat them with this dignity. We're not even there yet. I mean, there's so many people, if you go online and look at a lot of Catholic websites who, as you said, who even are attacking me for I'm not challenging any church teaching for even suggesting that people listen to these, this group of people. So the, I think the Pope has really made some great strides and I think the church has as well. So we're, we're moving ahead. And it's sometimes it's two steps back, two steps forward, one step backward though. And you, you specified LGBTQ um, Catholics that would include the clergy. Yeah. And, well, and is that, that, uh, would, would that require something different? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. It's a very complicated question. So, you know, for people who might say, well, what does that mean? I mean, uh, you know, so Catholic uh, members of religious order, we take a vow of chastity. Um, Catholic diocesan priests make a promise of celibacy. It's essentially the same thing. Women religious, uh, women in religious orders take chastity. So it doesn't mean that they're breaking their vows or they're sexually active or they're, they're getting married. Uh, it, you know, it just means that they're you know, homosexually oriented or bisexual or whatever, and they're in religious orders and they're in the priesthood. That's always been the case. I know 
probably dozens of gay priests, you know, who are faithful to their vows and, and lesbian sisters. The problem is, because it really is a good question, you know, why don't we know more about them? Well, oftentimes their bishops or their religious superiors don't want them to talk about it. They're not interested in having them talk about it. They're afraid of it. It's, they, they're afraid for them, right? What, what might happen to them. So it's, a, it's frustrating because I think if that were more widely known, so some, some people feel it's a, you know, scandalous, but you know, they're, they're living faithful lives. If that were more widely known, I think people would have a greater sense of where that is in the church. And I think, for example, young LGBT people might be able to say, oh, look, here's this role model that I know, or this teacher or this pastor, but that's not happening, unfortunately. Well, one last question on the LGBT issue yeah. from my side, and that is uh, uh, the Catholic Church educates a lot of uh, kids. My brother mm -hmm. went to graduate prep school in Jersey City. Uh, the, the, is there an official uh, guideline in terms of discussing LGBT issues amongst Catholic educators, especially those that educate uh, high school kids? That's a great question. And nice shout out to St. Peter's Prep over yeah, in Jersey City. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it varies from diocese to diocese and school to school. Uh, some, um, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking, actually more speaking since the pandemic, because I can do it via Zoom uh, with Catholic high schools and colleges. And some schools are incredibly open. They have gay straight alliances or LGBT groups and some schools, nothing. And it's forbidden. Right. I met a woman about uh, three years ago now who told me that she went to a Catholic girls school. And um, so this was like three years ago. And uh, the, the sister who was in charge uh, said in response to her question about whether or not she could, uh, you know, start a gay straight alliance. No, we don't, we don't need that because there are no lesbian girls here. There were 600 girls in the school. Uh -huh. So you know, that's that. Uh, so there, it, it depends on where you are, which is unfortunate. Uh, Father, you, you've become uh... You said your, your, your calling began with TV, and here you are on TV a lot, and you're a familiar face for many, many people. Um, I'm guessing that one doesn't enter the, the clergy to become a TV star. <laughs> no, one, <laughs> one does not. <laughs> one should not, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and so I'm guessing this just sort of happened because of uh, you, you writing books and stuff, and I suppose uh, you got inv invitations. I'm curious what it was like to suddenly discover you're a recognizable personality, and um, and how other you know uh, people in in the church responded. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I work so um, as you, as I've been saying, I'm a Jesuit priest, and after I was ordained, I was assigned by my Jesuit superiors to America Magazine. You know, so I, I write and I write books and. And gradually, you know, I, you know, you get phone calls from people. Would you comment on this? Would you comment on that? And, you know, someone said to me once, if you're not insane and return their phone calls, you know, you, you know, <laughs> they, they stay on the Rolodex or what used to be Rolodex. So it happened kind of gradually, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, I recognizable. I, I'm not the kind of person that, well, if I'm in my collar, sometimes people will say hello. All right. But it's not, <laughs> I, I don't get mobbed going down the street. Uh, and if I'm not in my collar, <laughs> I mean, no one pays me any attention, which is good. Um, yeah, I, I think um, the, the people that would be happy with what I'm doing are generally the people with, that are happy with what I'm saying. Uh, 
Mm. Right. Uh, and so that goes for lay people and priests and bishops. The people that are not happy are not happy with what I'm saying, which I, don't, I'm, I never quite understand because I try to be really thoughtful. And, you know, and, I would and, say the best you, you are the best known priest, uh, lay, uh, you know, priest in America since uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen. Well, yeah, on, for, that, that shows how old I am. Uh, I wanted to he, ask he had you a lot, uh, he had a lot better clothes, too. <laughs> 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 yes, that, that I remember in a black book. <laughs> yeah, and it was. Right. Uh, I, I I wanted to ask you uh, uh, to, about your book, "Learning to Pray." Mm -hmm. uh, I think the title uh, sort of indicates that probably it's a book about prayer. But tell <laughs> us about it. And yeah, it's. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It's an introduction to prayer. Uh, and it really is the, the subtitle says that it. it's a guide for everyone. So it's from people who have never prayed before, uh, you know, the, even a doubtful skeptic to people who pray every day, go on retreats. What I really wanted to do was demystify it in a good way, because, you know, most people think I'm not praying well, because nothing's happening, or it's boring, or it's dry, or I don't know what's supposed to happen. Uh, and they compare themselves to other people. And one of the things I really wanted to focus on in the book is what actually happens when you pray. You know, you read, I'm sure you guys know, you read these spiritual books and it's like, well, you know, when you feel the presence of God or you feel God's gentle touch. And most people say, what are you talking about? Like, what does that mean? Am I supposed to hear voices or visions or what does that mean? So I try to unpack that in terms of what, what actually happens to people when they pray and what can happen. And also to look at things like dryness and distractions. So and, and to talk about different um, practices and prayer. So it's a very like how-to book. Um, uh, I, I hope it's very accessible for people. Uh, while we're on that, um, I know there's many different type kinds of prayer mm -hmm. and, and every uh, spiritual tradition has its uh, forms. Um, do you go into the different types of prayer? Because most people think of prayer as just asking for something. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I go into... Uh, you know, imaginative prayer, centering prayer, what's called Lexio Divina, where you use scripture, a nature prayer, journaling, the examination of conscience. Yeah, you're right. And, and at the beginning of the book, I say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking for things. I mean, you know, you look at the Psalms and, and you know, the, the whole, the Old Testament, the New Testament, I actually have to sort of put up a, a defense for petitionary prayer because people say, oh, you know, that, that's very elementary. Uh, you know, I mean, read the Psalms. They're asking for stuff, you know, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. It's human. It's natural. But my the point of the one of the points of the book, which is not new um, to the book, is that if that's all your prayer is, you know, it's a little one sided, right? If you're not kind of listening and noticing where God is, I, you know, I use the example of a friendship, you know, it's a good analogy. You know, if all you did with, you know, it's fine to ask your friends for favors, you know, would you help me with this? I need some advice. If all you did with your friends, all you did was ask them for things, huh. you would start to say it's a little bit of a strange relationship. <laughs> You would lose the friends. Right, yeah. Right. Now, fortunately, God's a little more faithful, but it's just it's you know, it, it, it's, it needs to be kind of a two way street it needs to be more of a conversation. You need to be open to listening too, instead of I you know, when I was little, it was like God was this big sort of cosmic gumball machine. You just put in the right prayer and hopefully something <laughs> would come out. Yeah. Well, Father, I wanted to go back to uh, your decision to go into the priesthood and mm -hmm. how uh, I read you were influenced by uh, the. I think a film or uh, you saw of uh, Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. What was there anything uh, particular that he said or you saw or you felt that that got you thinking in that direction? That's another great question. Uh, it was more just the look on his face and the the mm -hmm. environment of the of the monastery, right? I know you guys are familiar with monastic life. Uh, you know, I think part of it was I was so stressed at my job at GE. 
Uh, I was so lost. I felt so sort of, um, you know, stressed and, and I was, I was having sort of stress related illnesses. I thought, oh my gosh, this looks so beautiful. There was a kind of romance to it and which is fine. I mean, when I entered religious life, I found, you know, it's like a, you know, it's, it's like a honeymoon, right? I mean, that you can't, you can't sort of sustain that. But that initial draw was, was the kind of romance of the monastic life. The irony is, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I know many Trappists and I think I'd last about four days, you know, uh, but right. it, it was, it was the beautiful romance of that that attracted me. That's interesting. Did, were you shocked at the discipline? At, at, in the monastery? Yeah. Yeah, I sort of, you know, that's, you know, it's interesting. I had read, obviously I'd read Merton and I'd read about different uh, monastic rules. I actually found it really beautiful. I found it really you know, there's a rhythm to the day. I didn't mind getting up super early or going to bed super early. I think the thing that surprised me, this is pretty funny, a little true confession. I was at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, which is Merton's Abbey. Merton's and, Abbey uh, yeah. yeah, which is so, it's beautiful, by the way. The food's great. It's gorgeous. It was hot as hell, you know, because it was Kentucky in the summer. And I remember I went to, they pray, let's, I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, say seven times a day with mass. And it's a lot of prayer. And, you know, usually the prayers are maybe 15, 20 minutes. So I was praying with them, um, say after lunch, maybe one o'clock. And I was taking a walk in the fields and I heard the bells ring, you know, two hours later. And I remember saying to myself, didn't we just pray? <laughs> what, what do we, well, I just prayed. What are you talking about? So there was, and I'm also, you know, I'm, I have what we call, you know, in the trade, you know, I have more of an active vocation. And I came back and I said to my spiritual director, I felt guilty. You know, I felt guilty that I wasn't. He said, that's not your vocation. Why should you feel guilty? You know, that's not what you're called to. You're the second uh, graduate of Gethsemane uh, that we've had on the program. So mm -hmm. I'll refer my listeners, our listeners, to uh, our interview with James Finley, who uh, uh, actually knew Merton. Yeah. Um, He's uh, terrific. To go uh, back to, to, yeah, go ahead, you, Dennis. Yeah, uh, you've been at it for a while now as a priest. Uh, the, your audience is, uh, the, when, you, when you give a talk, uh, if you give a, um, a sermon at mass, uh, has the audience changed much? Have, have the interests and questions and um, priorities of, uh, of, of the lay people that you uh, counsel, has that changed much? It has. And I, I mean, I, I don't mean to get too political, but I think over the last four years, there's been a lot more uh, emphasis in questions about political things. And certainly uh, the election uh, was something people were really struggling with. And I, I wrote an article in America recently called How Catholic Leaders Helped Give Rise to the Violence at the Capitol. And, and one of the impetuses, impeti, I guess, for this article was that I was receiving through my public Facebook page so many pleas really from people saying, my pastor tells me I'm going to hell for voting for Joe Biden. And I don't know what to do. And so, you know, that was a really important uh, thing to address, but that that's come up a lot in the last couple of months. Can I ask you to elaborate on that? Because I just discovered the, your article this morning and uh, didn't have time to read it. What, uh, what did you actually say? And the article appears in America, the uh, Jesuit review for people, and you can see it online for our listeners. And well, basically, we should say, excuse me, Father, but we, we should say we're recording this um, a week after the uprising in, in the, uh, the insurrection, I should say, in the Capitol. Uh, it won't air for a few weeks, but it will still mm -hmm. be on people's minds. And mm -hmm. so what, what exactly did you say? 
Well, I looked at the number, the great number of priests and even bishops who were using very dualistic language, which is not part of Catholic teaching. I just want to very briefly, uh, Catholic teaching says that there are lots of different um, moral questions that uh, people need to look at, including abortion, which the church, you know, focuses on. Uh, but there are a lot of other questions and that a person should use his or her conscience, right, to determine, you know, the, the, who you vote for. Unfortunately, a lot of priests and even some bishops were telling people, no, it's a sin to vote for uh, the Democrats. And that, that is simply not done in the Catholic Church. So I looked at the priests and bishops who did that. Um, and I looked at also, unfortunately, a lot of personal vilification, you know, calling Biden names and, you know, bad Catholic evil, uh, you know, a walking, talking scandal, really, that, that was really frustrating for a lot of Catholics to hear. Because again, Pope Francis, I think, said probably the most eloquent sum up of this is that the church is meant to form consciences, not to replace them. And so that's what the article was about and how that led to this environment uh, where, you know, you saw all these Christian symbols at the, at the Capitol because people thought they were doing something religious because they thought they were fighting against evil, right? Which is really, was, was really terrible. And that the other big irony is that a lot of these priests who, um, you know, consider themselves pro-life, right? Um, led to an environment that caused people's death. Father, I, I wanted to ask you also uh, your, your, your relationship to Colbert. I've seen you on the <laughs> show. Uh, I'm, I, I watch his, I, I enjoy his show. I enjoy you on it. And, uh, uh, and, and, and I'm wondering what the reaction, what feedback you got from for, uh, fellow clergy when you uh, appeared and when you continue to appear on his show. Oh, when I was on the show. Um, yeah, you know, I think people, again, if you like what I have to say, your people are generally happy to see me on TV. If they don't like what I have to say, they're not happy to see me on TV. Things have become so polarized. Uh, and I didn't really, thanks to this LGBT book and this LGBT ministry, I never set out to do controversial ministry. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got a note from someone yesterday saying that some right-wing Catholic organization is using your name to raise money. Right. Like you fight wow. against this person and this terrible person. So it's it's a strange thing to become. It really is a very strange thing to become this kind of polarizing figure. And I, I truly I, I'm not a kind of controversialist. And I that's the last thing I would want to do. But yeah. So if you if you like what I say, you're happy to see me on Colbert. If you don't like what I say, you're probably <laughs> infuriated. So do um, it's interesting when when uh, people outside of a, a spiritual institution um uh, get wind of uh, factionalism in mm -hmm. within a, a, a mm -hmm. tradition, and we all know there are right-wing Catholics and progressive Catholics. Uh, and I'm guessing that uh, within a, a diocese or within an order, uh, there would be a lot of difference. And mm -hmm. is it does it get heated? Does it get uh, especially in, when you touch on uh, socio and political issues? That's another good question. Not as much as you would think. Um, so for example, in the Jesuits, we have, I always say the Jesuits include uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles, who was quite conservative. That's one of the reasons he was made a Cardinal, a great theologian, and Father Daniel Berrigan, uh, you know, the great, um, you know, peace, peace and justice advocate. They were, I, I, and they got along, you know, Dan and Avery got along. I, I'm not sure if they ever lived in community, but in general, uh, I think what happens is that we we have um, we have a history 
of living together. Uh, we are focused on Jesus and the gospels. And, you know, there's, there's a real focus on that and on community. I also think people are pretty smart. In other words, they don't, <laughs> they don't bring up things in community that they know are going to, you know, infuriate people. That doesn't mean there aren't disputes and that people don't disagree with one another, but no, it's, it's much worse. I would say in, for example, parishes or in, in a diocese where they're really, there, there's, you know, they're not, people aren't forced to kind of reconcile. It can be really difficult in parishes, particularly where a, a, a priest or in the case of a, a diocese, a bishop is, um, is kind of black and white thinking is kind of, I mean, you know, if you're a priest and you say that anyone who's voting Democrat is going to hell, you're going to alienate, you know, depending on where you are, probably half your parish, which is really unfortunate. Dennis, can I follow up on that? Yeah, and then I have one um, last question. How much time um, do we have left, Bill? Oh, we have a few minutes, about four or five. Um, when um, it's become obvious, if you look at the political landscape, that a lot there's the, a lot of the sort of right wing Christ, uh, Catholic uh, folks have more. Uh, they're in alignment with a lot of the uh, evangelical mm -hmm. Protestants when it comes to political activism. And uh, they seem to have more in common, at least their public uh, facing uh, of sides of them. Um, does, what does that do within, a, within an institution or within a religious order when there's you know, historically tension between Catholics and Protestants, and now you have these strange bedfellows oh, yeah. in ways? Yeah, no, there's a lot more, there's a lot more tension within the church. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think you also see, so, so what happens is it becomes more political than religious. And you mm -hmm. see people who they're, they're happy to, for example, set aside the church's teaching on the death penalty, right? Well, I don't believe in that. You know, well, well, well then how, how are you pro-life? If, you, if you're in favor of life for the, the child in the womb, why not for the inmate on death row? Oh, well, I don't have to think about that. And you could say the same thing with Catholics on, on the left, too, who say, I don't have to think about, you know, the child in the womb. So it becomes more political. Um, but I think what, what's happened in the Catholic Church, which is unfortunate, is that there has been this alliance, I would say this rather unholy alliance, between the anti-Francis forces and the pro-Trump forces. Oh, my. And it's, it's all the same people. So you see uh, the same websites, the same commentators, you see secular organizations picking up on Catholic people who are anti it's, it's basically anti-Francis Pope uh, pro-Trump and you know it, again it becomes more political and we are you know look you know I, I vote and I have political ideas but we're supposed to refrain from that kind of active sort of campaigning and electioneering what a strange world that with that there's a dichotomy between Donald Trump and the Pope yeah that's wow. the world we live in. Father, <laughs> thank you so very much for taking the time to come on. And I want to say again, the name of the book uh, it will be out February 2021 is Learning to Pray. I don't know if you timed it this way, but certainly a lot of people I know have been talking about I, I, during the pandemic. I wish I had uh, knew how to pray or meditate or do something spiritual. And so I think uh, uh, the timing on it is, is very good. And we look forward to it coming out. Thanks, yes, and thanks and for having me on the show. Well, we have a couple of minutes, if you don't mind. I want sure. to ask you what you would leave our audience with, uh, with respect to uh, the instructive part of your book in how to pray. 
I, I think a lot of people hear the word pray and they say, oh, that's not for me, but yeah. they, they're not aware of the uh, variety of mm-hmm. methods. I, I always quote uh, Meister Eckhart, who said, if the only prayer you ever use is thank you, it will be enough uh, <laughs> or something like that. That's that's correct. And I, I say in my book, if, if, if we did that, my book would have been a lot shorter. Um, yeah, so I think, I think the main thing to say is that everyone can pray. It is, it is accessible to everyone and everyone who has a desire to, one, or more deeply, I would say that the desire to pray um, really comes from God. It's one way that God has of calling us, you know, to, to be closer to God, you know, whoever we are. And that there are many different ways of praying. There's no right way to pray. There's no wrong way to pray. Whatever brings you closer to God is, is prayer. But I think, you know, the key, as I was saying before, is just understanding what, what happens when you pray. Uh, because people, they sit down, they close their eyes, nothing happens. And they feel like, oh, I'm a failure. I can't pray. Well, they need to know a couple of things let, to be more attentive to what is happening, right? And also to know that there are some dry periods. I mean, I, I go through dry periods myself. Uh, Thomas Merton went through dry periods. Thomas Merton, a great quote, um, he got distracted. He said, anyone who has never been distracted in prayer is not really praying. <laughs> so to, to be uh, open to the different ways of prayer and to know that um, this is the first line of my book, everyone can pray. Including atheists? Well, I do think that you have to believe in God to pray, <laughs> but I would say agnostics, you know, people who are seeking, you know, and I, I know a lot of people who I basically... Um, meet and they say, oh, I don't believe in God. God's never involved in my life. Once you get them to start noticing and to say, gee, did you ever consider this as one way of God has of speaking to you? That kind of opens them up a little bit. But I do think you do have to give God the benefit of the doubt. And what about the how one conceives of God? I mean, that's I know a lot of people who will say I'm an atheist because I, they don't believe in, you know, the Charlton Heston version right. of God. But when you uh, redefining things. Right. Right. And another great point. Uh, so I often say to people, uh, you know, whose God is it? Is this the God that you've been taught or the, the judgmental God that the, as one of my friends said, memorably, the God is a parole officer, right? Who's always looking for an infraction. <laughs> you've already done something wrong. Or is it the God that you really encounter, uh, not only in scripture, but in your life, right? The God of calm, the God of peace, so yeah, it, it is, you're, it's, it's helping people to see God in a new way, which helps them um, imagine God and then relate to God in a new way. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time and um, the work you're doing. And thanks for speaking out as you do uh, from our perspective for the right things. <laughs> and, um, and we hope you can come back sometime. I'd love that. Thank you. And keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And and, uh, listeners, uh, the book is Learning to Pray, Dr. James, uh, Father James Martin. It will be out in February. Take good care. Look forward to it. Thank you so much.